The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. Welcome to another edition of Health Kick. I'm Tim Boren. Today we're talking about kidneys, which are those hard-working organs that remove uh, waste from the body. Uh, luckily, we've got two of them, or at least most of us do, um, but we're all in trouble if the kidneys stop functioning because of something like uh, chronic uh, disease. And now this brings us to drug developer Dimerics, which is focused on developing an adjunct therapy for the common ailment, diabetic kidney disease. It's also focusing on another rarer disease. Um, and uh, I'm talking here about focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, but let's just call it FSGS. Dimerics is also furthering a treatment for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is becoming more common, of course, as people get older. Now, I've got with me Dimerix's CEO, Dr. Nina Webster, who is going to talk through Dimerix's progress with its lead drug candidate, which is called DMX200. So welcome, Nina. Hi, Tim. How are you? Very well, thanks. Very well. Um, now, just, just starting with yourself, uh, you've been with the company since about late uh, 2018, and uh, you've got a uh, pharmacology background, haven't you? That's correct. I joined the company in late 2018. Uh, my original um, background is in pharmacology. You're absolutely correct. First degree was pharmacology. And then I moved into intellectual property law. So I'm a, a qualified in, in intellectual property law and patent strategy uh, before moving into business development side of it and doing my MBA. So I've kind of do a bit of science, business and law. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm kind of guessing the company wanted that melding of uh scientific and commercialization experience there's, there's not much is it's not much is coming up with a drug if you uh, can't get it to market that's right okay and that's uh, of course the company's focus with uh, uh dmx 200 um but tell us a bit about how the drug works what the um mechanism of action is Okay, so thank you, Tim. In terms of the um, specifically looking at DMX200 and the mechanism of action, it's important to remember there are many different causes of kidney disease, you know, such as yes. autoimmune, hereditary, sclerotic, and infection-related. Both diabetic kidney disease and focal segmental glomerulosclerosis are both types of what are known as sclerotic kidney diseases. And that means that the kidney failure is due to inflammation and scarring of the kidneys. Now, there are three primary mechanisms of sclerotic kidney disease. Firstly, there's hyperfiltration and subsequent hypertension within the blood vessels uh, of the filtration elements in the kidney. And that's essentially an increase in the filtration rate and the pressure in the kidney. In other words, the kidney is working really, really hard, which builds up pressure. Secondly, that persistent pressure in the kidney cells results in inflammation, which in those cells leads to fibrosis, which is another word for scarring. And yes. thirdly, that scarring leads to a loss of those specialist sites uh, called podocytes in the kidney. 
Now, the kidney cells, you've got to remember, are unlike any other cell in the body in that those cells can't regenerate. So once you go down that slope of kidney disease, you cannot come back up. So you can imagine that as those cells die off, the remaining cells have to work even harder, causing more inflammation and causing more scarring, causing more cells to die. That cycle yes. gets faster and faster, hence kidney disease is progressive and leads to kidney failure when there are not enough cells left to filter the blood. So the current standard of care is a, an angiotensin receptor blocker, such as Herbisartan. That blocks certain receptors responsible for hyper, hyperfiltration and hypertension. And DMX200 works on certain receptors in the inflammation pathway to prevent inflammation and scarring. But more importantly, it's how those work together. So if you can imagine, kidney cells express both of those receptors and they sit side by side on the kidney. If you block the first receptor, the second receptor remains not only open, but does what's called upregulate. So if you think of a two-lane motorway now becoming a five-lane motorway, allowing significantly more traffic, as, the signal, as such, that signal still comes through. The converse also is true. So if you block the second receptor and the first one remains open and upregulates, it receives a greater signal. So this is where the administration of DMX200 alongside Herbisartan is so exciting because both receptors are being blocked at the same time and therefore eliminating the signal. Yeah, that's the proposition. It's not one plus one equals two, but one plus one equals four or five. Okay, so either Sartan only blocks one of the receptors. Correct. Whereas, yeah, okay, okay. Um, is uh, the drug also based around a, a hepatitis B drug? I think it's called Propagermanium, which is a, a great a great name. Yes, that's right. Propagermanium is the compound uh, that is, is DMX200. Uh, it was approved in 1981 in Japan for hepatitis B. Bear in mind, it's at a very different dose and a very different formulation. But it's never been approved in the US, Australia or anywhere else in the world, which means it's a new chemical entity and entitled to the exclusivity periods that come with that. The advantage we have is that the development pathway has a lower risk um, because it has a known safety profile at the same time getting those benefits of a new chemical entity. Okay. And why was it uh, never approved? It's never been applied for. It was a Japanese company that originally developed it for hepatitis B in Japan and never took it anywhere else. Right. Okay. Okay. Like, 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 like a lot of drugs. So this is kind of sort of a, a repurposing story from the sounds of it. It's a repurposing story in, in one sense. Yes, it's a known safety profile. In another sense, it's a complete new chemical entity. And, and so will be a what's called a 505B1 submission, uh, which then, like I said, comes with it, the uh, attraction of the exclusivity periods. Okay, okay. And, and, and speaking of regulation, wh wh where are you uh, at the moment? You've got, uh, you've got orphan status in the, uh, in the US in relation to uh, FSGS, don't you? Yes, we do. We have orphan drug designation in both Europe and US. And with that comes a, a number of different um, regulatory benefits, uh, accelerated approval. Uh, important for us, and when you talk about the, the regulatory stance, we met with the FDA in November 2019, so very recently, uh, to discuss the dossier that summarised the phase three program for FSGS and, and the supporting data for non-clinical and manufacturing. Is a key, message, a key meeting for us as it provided clarity on the remaining development for DMX200 right through to market approval. And important for us, it confirmed that the endpoints for the accelerating market, market approval will be 
uh, the uh, protein in the urine along with a single phase three study. So we also confirmed that the non-clinical package and manufacturing uh, package were suitable for registration. So that's a big win for us. It means that upon readout of the current two phase two trials expected mid-calendar year 2020, we'll be well positioned to complete and lodge an IND and progress into international phase three studies for FSGS patients. Right. Okay. Okay. And so you'd uh, you'd only be required to do a, a small or smallish phase three study from the sounds of things. It would be a single phase three study with an accelerated endpoint, and the accelerated endpoint is the benefit of having that orphan drug designation. Yeah. So Nina, I'm just wondering why uh, FSGS is a, a an orphan disease. Why no, no one else has tackled it? Uh, because there are quite a few sufferers. I I understand. That's right. It's um, FSGS is an orphan indication, which means it's a very rare disease. And that means that if you look at the US numbers, it has to be less than 200,000 patients suffering from FSGS. In the US at the moment, it's about 80,000 patients suffering from FSGS. The unfortunate thing is, is with this rare disease, it's not a good prognosis. The average time from diagnosis to complete kidney failure is, is less than five years. And sadly, it affects both adults and children as young as two years old. Unfortunately, for those who are lucky enough to get a kidney transplant, only about 40% of those get reoccurring FSGS and the cause is unknown. So ultimately, all of these patients end up on dialysis and or transplant and there are no approved drugs globally at this time. Yeah, okay. So FSGS, it's not a lifestyle disease, uh, whereas diabetic kidney disease, I I presume, relates uh, more to some uh, sort of... uh, Unsavory yeah. habits and uh, etc. Yeah, it's it's a difficult one to answer because actually nobody knows the cause of FSGS. It's it's an unknown cause. Um, it's as I said, something happening in the body because to get reoccurring FSGS in a transplanted kidney in forty percent of patients receiving one is is a high statistic. In terms of diabetes, you're absolutely right. The diabetic kidney disease. What I found really confronting is that about forty percent of people with diabetes have kidney disease, and many don't know it yet. With the incidence of diabetes growing so rapidly globally, uh, there are few treatment options, and you can imagine the rate or the incidence of kidney disease is also going to to increase. Yeah, okay. And so does diabetic kidney disease uh, tend to uh, uh, afflict older people as the the damage uh, accumulates? Um, It can affect uh, adults of of any age. Uh, It's basically, as I said, 40% of people with diabetes uh, can uh, suffer from kidney disease. The, uh, in terms of older patients, you're probably right that as you get older, your probability of getting it is higher. Um, so there will be more in the over 60, 65 bracket than there would be under. Uh, but nevertheless, there are patients under 60 who also suffer from diabetic kidney disease. Mm, okay, okay. And, and what's the size of the addressable markets in, in dollar terms? So in terms, it's, that's a really good question as well. So if you look at, um, F, we'll take diabetic kidney disease first. It's, it's the easier one to look at. Um, the only product that's approved in the market in the US at this time is Herbisartan. It's indicated for diabetic kidney disease. And we know that the dose that's used for diabetic kidney disease retails about $550 per month. And we know that the number of scripts that go out the door are about 4, 4 million scripts each year. Now, with that in mind, many of those patients don't need anything else. The um, angiotensin receptor blocker, Herbisartan, will do enough to reduce the protein in the urine, such they they become what's called, uh, they're they're more normal. 
But many of the patients remain what's called macroalbuminuric, which means the protein is still too high and they need further treatment. So if you assume 50% of those at the $550 per month, it means that you have an addressable market of $1.1 billion per year. Now, that's not the size I'm, I'm proposing that Dimerics gets. I'm saying that's sure. the size of the pie that we can go after. And, and Nina, what, what's your commercialization strategy, uh, for example, in terms of uh, partnering? Yeah, that's a really good question, Tim. Um, as you appreciate, the current phase two clinical trials play a large part in our commercialization plan, but they're no means the only piece of the puzzle. So we are working on the patent strategy, commercializations, uh, manufacturing supply, um, interacting with all the agencies globally, not just the US, et cetera. And all of those activities are, are part of our focus to achieve the best outcome for our shareholders. Now, what we are doing in the background of that as well is we are building strategic alliances across commercial, clinical and manufacturing areas at the appropriate stage of development. Um, there's a significant interest amongst the global players who are actively seeking kidney disease assets at this time. And we continue to engage with potential licensing partners. However, something to bear in mind is that licensing transactions in the pharmaceutical field don't happen overnight. They, they take time. And kidney disease remains a high unmet need for these patients who are desperately seeking new treatments. So as such, our near-term strategy is to ensure the development program progresses efficiently and effectively. So we are planning for success of the two current phase two clinical trials, and we're engaging in key preparation steps for the next step, next stage. Ultimately, our goal is to create further value for our shareholders and, and developing this commercially commercial attractive product for patients in need as quickly and as safely as possible. Yeah, okay. And so uh, for first things first with the uh, uh, the uh, phase two trials, you, you mentioned that they're both in, in progress um, and we can expect some uh, results. Uh, is it in the current quarter or later this year? Yeah, so to date we've, um, we've got the phase two studies underway at the moment. Both trials are double-blind, randomised, placebo-controlled crossover studies that evaluate the safety and efficacy of DMX200 in patients with either di diabetic kidney disease or FSGS and who are receiving a background therapy of Herbisartan. So what that means is that every patient will receive treatment of both DMX200 and placebo, although neither patients nor the physicians know which they receive. That's the blinded part. Um, both studies are fully recruited and the last patient in the FSGS study is scheduled to receive their last dose in June and data shortly thereafter. And the last patient in the diabetic kidney disease is scheduled to receive their last dose in July 2020 with data shortly thereafter. So sort of June, July, early August is, is going to be a hot time for us with two key price inflection points. Yeah, OK. And, and does the COVID-19 epidemic, does that uh, affect the trials uh, in terms of uh, patient access yeah. or you know, maybe patients being, being reluctant to come along to, uh, to get treated? Etc. Etc. Uh, it's it's interesting. It's in the light of the COVID nineteen and evolving advice to the general public, uh, Dimerics implemented a number of contingency plans so that if trial patients were required to self isolate or they became ill or in many cases hospitals said you can't come in anymore um, and there was restrictions on visits. All fortunately for us, all of our studies are being run in Australia, so we have the ability to closely monitor those study sites. In addition to that, our clinical program manager running the DMX200 studies had the foresight to start implementing a risk mitigation strategy in February 2020. So we already have that up and running um, so that we can visit patients in their own homes 
not we, uh, the t- the uh, medical team. It's not not the dimeric staff. It's also worth noting that we recruited an additional five patients for the DMX two hundred diabetic kidney disease study, and that was to provide significant buffer for the statistical statistical powering. Yeah. Um, the advantage there is that if a patient, for whatever reason, misses a data point or can't make a visit, we have sufficient to complete the study. And the same with the FSGS study is uh, it's a small number of patients derived to, for, to look at primarily safety and secondary is the efficacy endpoints. So we can be flexible on the number of patients to complete the study. But as we sit here today, we have not been impacted by the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Okay, but if a patient was afflicted, um, you, you've, you've kind of got some spares, and um, they're, they're they're at home, so uh, it wouldn't um, uh, sink the whole trial or anything like that. No, that's right. At the moment, our studies remain on track and on budget, and we are absolutely well placed to reach our clinical milestones. Okay, great, excellent, Nina. And uh, so speaking of uh, budgets, uh, what's the company's financial position like? Uh, I, I'm talking in particular, of course, about the uh, about the all-important cash balance. Absolutely. I'll start by just uh, giving an overall picture of the financial position and we'll get to, to uh, conclude on the mm, cash balance sure, and where that sure. fits. So Dimerix currently has a market cap of just over $25 million. It's trading this morning at about $0.14 cents a share. Um, and, and the good thing from us is despite recent stock market movement associated with the COVID-19 global pandemic, you can see that we're still trading north of our capital raising price of $0.11 cents just before Christmas. Okay. So in recent months, our tr- share price has tracked significantly ahead of the general market, which is certainly a cause for optimism for us. We also, I think it's worth pointing out, have two analysts now covering the stock. Taylor Collison initiated just before Christmas and Argonauts uh, initiated coverage just two weeks ago. So, What are, the, what are their tar- target prices? So the Taylor Collison target price was 51 cents. Bear in mind that was pre-COVID-19. Argonaut initiated in the middle of COVID-19, only two weeks ago, with a price target price of $0.40. Cents. So still very optimistic there. Yes, yes. So yes. I think in terms of cash balance, as at the end of December quarter, we had $3.85 million in cash. Um, important to note as well, we're in the middle of two clinical trials. So our monthly spend is somewhat lumpy, and that will diminish as we complete those studies. So it's, it's not that that um, cash spend continues indefinitely. Um, and so the cash position we have, we're very fortunate, is sufficient to complete our studies as well as provide a sufficient runway post-study data. Yeah, okay. And in this current environment, I mean, I, I guess it's hypothetical because it sounds like you don't need to raise money, but uh, uh, do you think uh, do you think worthy biotechs, uh, ASX biotechs, would be able to raise funds in, in, in the uh, current climate? I think the short answer to that, Tim, is yes. I mean, certainly the feedback we've had from investors and brokers is that there is certainly uh, some appetite out there for capital raise. The question becomes at what price? Ah, exactly. exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the company has had links with um, Andrew Forrest or Twiggy Forrest uh, from uh, Fortescue Metals uh, in the uh, in the past, and um, I, I, I gather you've still got Peter Mears uh, as your biggest shareholder. He was uh, Twiggy Forrest's uh, right hand man at uh, Fortescue. Right. Um, yes, Peter Mears is still our largest shareholder. Owns about thirteen percent of the company. Okay. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully he's got some deep pockets to uh, to turn to if uh, if needs be. 
Yes, oh. although, as I said, at the moment, I think we're in a relatively comfortable position to ride out this storm, see through our clinical trials and, and go from there. Yeah. Okay. Great. All right. Well, it, it's um, it's it's heartening to see the um, uh, progress being made, and in terms of what investors should look out for, it uh, it sounds like the um, uh, the upcoming uh, trial result are the key thing. Yes, that's right. We've got the um, key key phase two clinical trial readouts expected uh, middle of the year. Uh, so in that regard, I mentioned before we have two near term price inflection points. And they're probably uh, approximately four weeks apart in terms of data, depending on how quickly the laboratories can turn around the data. Um, and we also have uh, some proof of concept data anticipated for the DMX 700 program around the middle of the year. Okay, terrific. Well, that's more than enough to uh, to keep the investors interested. Nina, thanks very much for, for popping by and all the best. And uh, hopefully we can talk again in the uh, near future. Thank you very much, Tim. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Nina. Mm-hmm.